With all of those things in mind, we're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Romans, and I'm excited to get into today's text with you. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up Romans chapter 1 this morning, and there is a lot here. And so uh, let's start to dig in this together. If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 1. Um, this is also on the screen, and uh, we'll begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due, the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. So let's do a quick recap on where this all began last week. Paul, at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, is introducing himself to the church in Rome, but he quickly jumps to his purpose, which is to lay out his gospel-centric perspective. Paul almost immediately declares that he is unashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to save all those who believe. And he goes from there to make the claim that the righteous shall live by faith. And we spent a decent amount of time last week talking about those statements in particular. And what we said was that that, that doesn't mean that righteous people will live by a particular like faith-based moral code or by a particular value set. Those things may be true, but that isn't what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that through faith in Christ, 
we are made righteous and that as a result, we will live eternally. You catch that? Um, I hope that makes sense. Paul's saying that through faith in Christ, we are made righteous. We are given the righteousness of Christ. And as a result of that, we will live eternally. The righteous will live by faith. That's, that's a key statement that will shape a lot of Paul's argument. And don't forget that this is an argument. Paul is presenting a case here. And there are some natural questions that should arise from the statements that he has made thus far. And some of those natural questions are things like this. Why do I need to be saved? If, if the gospel is God's power to save all who believe, why do I need to be saved? And what exactly do I need to be saved from? Those are pivotal questions here. Paul's talking about this good news and the fact that the good news is God's salvific power, but why in the world do I need it? And that rhetorical question is just kind of hanging out there. And starting in verse 18, Paul begins to answer it. He says, the wrath of God, this is verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what do we need to be saved from? Well, first of all, we need to be saved from God's wrath. Or another word that you could insert there is the word retribution. Both of those words, wrath and retribution, they don't just mean arbitrary anger. God is a lot of things, but God is not ever arbitrary or capricious. Um, in other words, God is never doing things on a whim. God is never doing things off the cuff. Um, God is never um, unreasonable. God is always responsive, especially when we're talking about his wrath and retribution. God is responding to something that has happened. Both of those words indicate that. Um, something has sparked him. Something has incited him. Something has provoked him and is now eliciting the response of his wrath. Paul does not keep us in suspense about the initial event that has provoked God's wrath. He doesn't keep us in suspense about what has elicited God's anger. And what it is, is it's the sin and unrighteousness of mankind. Now remember that Paul is writing to people in Rome where the predominant religious system is not only pagan, but mythological. He's writing to Christians, he's writing to the church, but he's writing into a context that has a predominant religious system that is mythological. And if you think back to school, you probably learned about the Roman gods at some point. Many of our planets today are named after them. Gods like Jupiter and Mars and Venus and Neptune and other gods like Apollo and, and on and on. Those gods were arbitrary and capricious. If you remember any of the stories about them, they weren't gods that adhered to any particular moral system or code. They, they didn't embody or inhabit a position of holiness or perfection. That was just kind of part of the deal. So even though Paul was talking to Christian believers, I think it's important for us to remember the context 
in which they were living because Christianity was not just some new way of looking at God within the Roman system or the Roman worldview. Christianity really was the opposite of the prevailing religious system, not only in the fact that it was monotheistic, but in the way that it viewed God as being perfect and holy and, and, and incapable of error. So Paul says that God's wrath is in no way unwarranted. God's wrath is justified. God is righteous in his wrath towards unrighteousness. In fact, his wrath is a direct response to the unrighteousness of men and, and what, what Paul calls man's suppression of the truth. The fact that mankind has suppressed the truth of who God is and that God is real and powerful because you could ask, and many people certainly do, well, how do I even know that God's real? Right? How do I even know that God exists? And Paul says, well, just look around you. Like, literally, just look around you. And yes, you could look at the most amazing natural scenery. You could look at the Grand Canyon or the Swiss Alps, or you could look at Yosemite, like just all of these incredible places. Paul says, when you are seeing those things, you are seeing God's work. Like you are seeing what is often invisible to us. These, these parts of God that are often hidden to us, like his power and his divinity. When you see his creation, you are seeing manifestations of his power and divinity. But but you don't even have to look at the most majestic or incredible natural settings. You can look at things that maybe we even consider to be mundane and normal. Think about the human body itself and the intricacies of the human body. The, the sheer fact that you are breathing in and out right now without even thinking about it. Um, all of those things are manifestations of God's power and divinity. And you could go on and on. Uh, your children. Uh, the resources that you've been given in your life, your family, uh, the night sky. I mean, just on and on. You can make your list. Paul says you can look at all of those things and say there is no God, but in that you are choosing to deny what is actually the most plain and reasonable answer to those things, which is that those things did not just happen. These things are not just cosmic coincidences. And when you say that these things just happen and that there is no divine power behind them, then you are not only denying the glory and splendor of God, but you are suppressing the truth of who God is. Through your unrighteousness, you are suppressing the truth of his power and his divinity. And what Paul says is his anger is ultimately kindled against that. And, and literally, you can go back to the beginning of time, to the Garden of Eden, and you can see mankind suppressing the truth of who God is. You can fast forward to the Tower of Babel and see mankind suppressing the truth of who God is. In fact, I think Paul's point here is that this is basically the story of human history. Rather than worshiping God for what he has done, what he says is that we've actually largely chosen to worship literally anything but God. Um, we've chosen to forsake God and to instead worship things that he has created 
but yet at the same time deny that he's real and that he has created these things. Like in Paul's mind, that is, that is just the epitome of foolishness and ridiculousness. And in Paul's context, he's speaking about formalized religion, like rather than worshiping God the creator, many people have just made up their own fake gods. This was certainly true in the Roman pantheon of gods. These are lowercase g gods that have literally just been made up. And I think that when, when not only we deny God, but when we worship a false god, that that's, that's almost like a step beyond just denying God. Verses 21 and 22 say that people became futile in their thinking, and, and as a result, just pure foolishness ensued. Instead of looking at the glory of creation and recognizing that there is a divine creator and divine power behind all of this, many people have instead denied that obvious truth only only to then take like a piece of wood like an object that god has made through his divine power and then to carve an image into that wood and say oh no actually this is god it's it's just unbelievable when you actually step back and consider what's happening think about the israelites for a moment and all that they saw god do when he was freeing them from egypt like he sent plagues, he sent the Passover, he parted the Red Sea, he, he took a people who were not trained soldiers or warriors and, and, and had no real weapons, and he made them victorious in battle against their enemies. Uh, he provided food on the ground for them every morning. He made water come out of rocks. He did all of these unbelievable things, and yet they say, eh, we want a real God, and they ask Aaron, the brother of Moses, to give them a golden calf, which was like one of the false gods that they had seen back in Egypt. I mean, it's just pure futility of thinking. God has done all of these incredible things, and yet, in a moment of crisis, in a moment of uncertainty, in a moment of doubt, in a moment of fear, in a moment of anxiety, rather then turning to his divine power, what they did and what we do and what many people have done throughout human history is we instead turn to something that he has actually created and we worship it rather than him. And so a question that should pop up for you is, man, where is that in your life today? In, in what ways are you forsaking the power of God and the divinity of God and actually in some instances, perhaps worshiping things that are not him, that have been made by him. It could be you're worshiping yourself. It could be you're worshiping your children. It could be you're worshiping your family. All wonderful things that he has made. But when we ascribe worship to those things rather than to him, what that becomes is idolatry. And we take these good gifts of God and we say, I'm going to pour my affection, my passion, my love, my devotion, my allegiance into those things rather than into him. And if you think back to the Israelites, when they bow down before a golden calf, how does God respond to that? Well, he's furious. He's livid. His wrath is kindled against them. And he wants to destroy them all because of what they have done. And when you 
and I and others deny God's power, it not only kindles his anger and wrath, but I think it creates kind of a downward spiral of foolishness. Things don't like go up from there. Things just degrade from there unless we turn our love and devotion and allegiance and affection over to him. So according to Paul, here's really what God has done. God has given humanity over to its own foolishness. From the time of the garden, mankind has been living under the effects of sin and death. But God has also said, fine, if, if you want that fruit, if you want it, you can have it. So Paul explains that this is why for millennia, this has been a world where people dishonor their bodies, a world where there's little regard for human life. Um, we're living in the midst of a crisis as it relates to abortion, but, but this is not new, guys. It's not new that people would have little regard for human life. Paul says this is um, an explanation for why this is a world where homosexuality and what Paul calls unnatural relations is rampant. That's also not a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he says this is a world where pretty much any debased thing imaginable, and many that aren't even imaginable, is present. And, and, and ultimately, as a result of God saying, fine, you do what you want, we now live in this broken world of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He lists all of these sins. He says people became filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip. They became slanderers. They became haters of God. They became insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They were just coming up with stuff. They were disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And the thing is, he keeps saying they, but in, in many ways, guys, this is us. This is our heart of sin. This is why we need a Savior. This is why we need hope and redemption. Because this is ultimately what is at our core. This is what God has given mankind over to. These are in no way states of being that God has created. This is our fault. And yes, Satan is the enemy who from the beginning has been whispering lies into our ears, but we are the ones who have chosen to believe those lies, and we are the ones who have um, committed these acts that are an affront to God. So, so why do you need to be saved? Well, verse 32, look at that with me. Paul says, though they know though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So, so Paul says, if you look at creation, there's no denying that God is real, that God is powerful. So, so you can, in some ways, look at his power and his divinity and yet not see it and turn a blind eye to it and harden your heart towards it. And even though you may have heard the right things, maybe even though you've heard the gospel, maybe even though you know the truth of scripture, you, you know it intellectually, you have turned your mind off to it. You, you don't have eyes to see it. You don't have ears to hear it. You've chosen to harden your heart against it. And, and so even though you know God's righteous decrees, 
that those who practice evil things deserve to die, you not only continue to do them, but you give approval to those who practice them. This is Paul's assessment of the unrighteous in our world, those who choose their own path rather than the way of Christ, rather than the gospel of Christ. And in doing this, I think, again, it should call our attention back to the Garden of Eden, right? God said, don't eat the fruit or you will die. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. They knew God's righteous decree. And, but then the serpent comes along and says, eh, or, or maybe you won't die, right? Like maybe God is keeping something from you. Maybe God's afraid of you. And the man and the woman, rather than saying, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? God created us. God uh, put us in this beautiful place. He made all of this. He's feeding us. He gave us each other. God has done nothing but good for us. Rather than saying that, the man and the woman do the most unwise, the most ridiculous, the most foolish thing that they could possibly do. They say, let's believe this talking serpent rather than God, even though he's done nothing for us. So listen, we, we deserve death. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. Many people look at the world and say, well, I, I just can't believe God exists. Or I can't believe that God's good because of all the horrible things I see in the world. But that perspective comes from a place of futile thinking because the horrible things, the broken things that we see in our world are not the result of God. They're the result of us. They're the result of mankind. This is part of what Paul is getting at here. These are the things that we wanted more than him. And, and just real quick, as an aside, I know that homosexuality is, a, is like a hot-button topic today. Um, and obviously, we're seeing probably more than ever in human history an acceptance of homosexual practice in our world. Um, but, but recognize here that that is just one thing in a laundry list of sins that Paul is talking about here. And if you come away from this text going, I, I knew it, I knew that the Bible said that that was wrong, then, then you have kind of missed the point of this text, which is that we are all deserving of death. And, and I don't care what sin you wrestle with in your life, you are not better than anyone else. And you are in no position, according to Jesus, you're in no position to pass judgment on the sin that's present in anyone else's life. Jesus says that would be completely ridiculous because in order for you to pass judgment on the sin that's in someone else's life, you have to like turn a complete blind eye to your own sin. He says you have to look past the log that's in your own eye. And, and so let us receive this with a certain level of humility. We, we have this delicate tension as Christ followers that we have to walk. On one hand, we should pray that we would be disgusted by sin, right? But that that would begin with our own lives, that our, our disgust with sin would not just be the sin that everyone else has in their lives, but that our disgust for sin, our abhorrence of sin, that that would begin with us, and that we would treat other people with humility, no matter what they wrestle with or struggle with, because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. But let's also be careful um, to not 
be accepting of sin or act as if sin is not sin. That's part of what he is talking about um, in verse 32. He says there are people who not only um, like actually perpetuate sin, but there are also those um, who like live in sin by giving approval to others who practice sinful things. Um, so there is this like, I'm actually doing it. And then there is this, I'm, I'm giving approval to it and I'm treating it as if it's something that's not wrong. So I hope that that makes sense, but, but it's a delicate balance. And I think that we have to err on the side of humility when it comes to just the world of sin. We have to recognize that there are many sins in our own lives that we have yet to fully exorcise, that we have many sins within ourselves that we need to put to death, and that we need to be very cautious about passing judgment on other people for sin that's present in, in their lives. Instead, what we need to be doing is we need to be showing love and grace and mercy towards other people because that's what Jesus modeled for us. Yes, Jesus will ultimately judge all people, but judgment is re reserved for him alone. And even when he was present on earth, even when he was incarn incarnate, what he said was, man, I haven't come so that the world might be judged, at least at that point in time, but so that the world might be saved. And that's Paul's point here in saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to save all who believe, no matter where you're from and no matter what you have done. And he gives us this laundry list of sin, one to remind us why we need a savior, but also so that we might like be in awe of the fact that in spite of all of these terrible things that we have done to God, all of these ways that we've turned our back on him, he still pours out his grace and mercy and love to us through the gospel. So let us not forget that he has primarily called us to love him and our neighbor as ourselves, and that when we love our neighbor as ourselves, we are showing worship and affection and allegiance towards him. So this is Paul's case today. We all deserve to die. And he will continue on, as we will see in the coming weeks, to turn his attention specifically to the Jews and, and speak to them as well. Um, but notice that Paul is committed to the gospel. It's because of the gospel. It's because the gospel is powerful to save and change us that Paul has given his entire life to it. And he's actually calling us not just to believe it intellectually, but he's calling us to give our entire lives to the gospel as well. This is the point of the passage that I read at the beginning of this service. It's Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. It was that passage from Acts chapter 2 that we read. And at Pentecost, people hear the gospel. They also hear like a full account of the history of Israel and all the ways that it had denied God, including killing his only begotten son. And people hear this and they are, it says, cut to the heart, right? The gospel is something that should pierce us. It's a double-edged sword. It should cut us in the best possible way. And when it cuts us, our response should also be the response that we saw in Acts 2, which is the people go, what do we do? What do we do in response to this? When you recognize who you are and what you have done, 
and the guilt and the shame that should be placed on your life and the condemnation and the death that should be placed on your life. When you recognize that Jesus has paid the price so that you might be reconciled to the Father, what do you do? How do you respond to that? And Peter's answer then, 2,000 years plus ago, Peter's answer then is still the same answer today. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Put it to death. Give your faith and allegiance and devotion to Christ. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, when that happens, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the beautiful promise of the gospel, this is verse 39 of Acts 2, he says, for the promise is for you, it is for your children, it is for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. This is why he is giving the whole of his life for this, because everyone needs it. It's not just for the Jews. It is for all whom the Lord calls to himself. With that, let us go to him in prayer and thanks. Let us turn our whole hearts over to him today. Do you join me in praying? Father God, we thank you for your love and grace and mercy. We thank you for the beauty of your gospel. And I pray, Father, today that we would be made just so aware of our wretchedness, of our incapability of wrecking, re being reconciled to you on our own. Let us recognize that any goodness that we may possess in our lives is really only goodness when measured by the world's standard. It's not goodness when measured by the standard of God's holiness. And so help us, Father, in humility to lay our sins before you. Help us to repent. Help us, even in today's text, to see your kindness. What incredible kindness that in spite of all that we have done throughout the course of human history, that you would give your only son to die so that we might have life and so that we might be reconciled to you. It is the greatest expression and manifestation of love that our world has ever seen. Help us to be inspired by it anew. Help us to be bowled over by it, awed by it, so that we might not only turn to you in repentance, but so that we might also seek to embody your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness as we interact with our brothers and sisters and with our neighbors. Help us, Father, to show the love of Christ to those around us, to forgive even when others have harmed us. Father, help us to be reconciled to those that we are at odds with. Help us to treat others with humility and grace and kindness, even when we disagree with them. And even when we are um, repulsed by their sin, help us first to be repulsed by our own sin. And help us, Father, to recognize how good you are in for forgiving the evil things that we have done. We love you, Jesus, and we give you praise and honor and glory this morning.